everybody, and welcome to Industry Night with me, Nikki Nellis, the show that takes you on the deep dive of the happenings of the hospitality industry. Um, so if you're new here, hi, welcome. If you're old here, hi and welcome. A little bit of information about me. I've been covering the D.C. food, wine, and hospitality scene for the last 20 years. Honestly, not just D.C. A little bit of national, a little bit of global, but a lot in the D.C. metro area. If you read the list, areyouwanted.com, the online e-zine that tells you everything that's happening here, you know that's me. That's my little baby started 20 years ago. Every food and wine event, every opening, everything that's coming soon, every promotion, everything. It's all in there. We don't, we don't sell, we tell. That's our motto at thelistareyouwanted.com. Uh, and you hear me every Sunday on DC's only food and wine variety show, Foodie and the Beast. We have been on 15 years. It's unbelievable. And we have so much fun doing that every Sunday. Um, you follow me at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Threads, all the platforms. I'm everywhere. Oh, and YouTube, because Industry Night this show that you're listening to or watching right now, we are on YouTube, so please subscribe. Okay, so as you can see, this doesn't look anything like the place I was in last week, but I do have this new residency. It is for the entire month of December. And as I mentioned last week, we are at the Watermark Hotel, which is at the Capital One area here in Tyson's. So if you haven't been out here, it's really going to throw you off because when people say Tyson's, you think the malls, which please, you can think of. But there is this whole other area and the Watermark Hotel is one of the shining stars. And within it is this fabulous restaurant called Ren. They do an incredible omakase. They have amazing cocktails. But as I said last week, and as I say to almost everybody I talk to, when you come out here, you're like, what is like, what is happening here? Where am I? And when did this all just like sprout out of the ground like Oz? Well, later in the show, I'm going to be talking to Osman Cuadros. Yes, Was I right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> he's the general manager here at the Watermark Hotel. He's been around since the beginning and he's going to share us about that. And then later I'm talking to my guest. I'm so excited because my friend, my friend wrote a book and it's really good. Uh, Catherine Miller, um, at the table, the chef's guide to advocacy. She shares essential techniques that she's developed. Uh, initially for the Shane Beard Foundation Chef's Boot Camp. She was with Chef's Action Network. Um, thanks to Catherine, chefs and other people have all learned advocacy, how to use your voice and make change. Um, so more on that from her when we talk. Okay, we're at my, one of my favorite parts of the show. Where have I been? Well, uh, no surprise, I've been out and about. I actually not only came out to the Watermark Hotel last week, but then I wound up coming out to this area again because I did not know that the new restaurant by Chef Kyle Bailey and the Longshot Hospitality Team, Omateo, is right across the street. This is their new Tex-Mex restaurant. Let me just tell you, these if you're fans of Dauphine's or the Salt Line, you will not be disappointed. The space is gorgeous really beautiful they um they spent some money on this space the lounge upstairs has a real like tulum-esque vibe i kind of just want to sit there hang out and have drinks um really good guac 
really good chips. Uh, the menus come together beautifully, and Kyle Bailey looks great behind that kitchen. It's got like a little open window. Uh, so add that to your own list. Uh, I did go to Sean Yancey's Girl Night Out. You know Sean from MVC4. She's a real motivator here in D.C. And every year she does this amazing event to raise money for women and children. And when Sean Yancey calls, everybody's like, yeah, I'll be there. So the whole MVC4 crew was there, as were so many other fun people. And all of it raised money for this incredible foundation that really does so much to support women and children here in the D.C. area. Uh, Grazie Mille has opened and uh, it is around the corner from Grazie Nona, Casey Patton and his team. Uh, their amazing Italian restaurant, Grazie Nona, like great pizzas, great pastas. But like you have to wait online. There's no reservations. Um, I have a problem with that personally, but that's just my thing. Anyway, around the corner is this little secret spot. It was a chicken place, but it's no longer. It is now Grazie Mille and it is this really swanky swanky bar now there is a menu there lots of dips and focaccia oysters things of that nature the music is a little loud for my liking personally but uh i may be uh on the other end of the age spectrum to enjoy um music at that decibel having said that the place is gorgeous very la it's got a great vibe definitely worth checking out uh we did go around the corner to dauphine's this was a kyle bailey weekend uh and had some really good seafood uh his crab claws are like my favorite in the city um and i love that space it feels very adult and then lastly Every year now for the last 19 years, I have been part of a group that started with just four of us, and now it's like 18 of us. It's called Office Party for Those of Us Who Don't Have Offices. And it's uh, myself, Amanda McClements, Amber Fow, and David Hagedorn. Um, we started this 19 years ago, believe it or not. It was just a little luncheon. We just all hung out, drank some wine, had a good time. Uh, now it's a massive endeavor. I hosted it yesterday. I did all the cooking. Amber Fowl was terrific and being my Sue. But the really cool thing was um, this group that was on my radio show, Foodie and the Beast, Party Host Helpers. I hired them to come in. There was a bartender and um, a uh, helper. And they just made my life so easy. I never thought I needed a bartender at a party, but making sure somebody's walking around, keeping glasses filled, making sure people have water. You know, um, this young woman, Kendall, was in the back. She was plating things and putting them out and picking up the napkins and cups and cleaning them. Anyway, it was a dream. And, and I think everybody had a wonderful time. And I uh, got rid of 19 of my 50 pumpkin cakes and 19 of my... Um, 30 chocolate cakes, part of my holiday giveaway, and uh, there's still some more left, so I'll keep you up to date with that all next week. Okay, I think that's enough about me. Whew. All right, so hello, Osman. Hi, Welcome. how are you? General Manager, Watermark Hotel. Um, I met you right when this place opened. But before that, I need to get the address where to pick up my, my pie. Okay. Right. Oh, yeah. Right. Of course. <laughs> no, I'll just bring it next week. Don't worry. Um, you bring it. So... When you come, when I first came out here a year and a half ago, maybe, I feel like the Watermark building was like the only building here. I'm sure these buildings around me were here, but it is like a, a community that sort of came out of nowhere. So can you talk a little bit about what Capital One and BF Sol and what's happening here? 
Of course, thank you and welcome back to the Watermark Hotel. Mm -hmm. We are, we continue to be, you know, just the excitement hasn't stopped since we opened two years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, as you mentioned, when you come to Tyson's, if you missed it for three months, when you come back, you see a new building that right. just <laughs> that, that just ha appeared out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. And really nice, I mean, from um, uh, what I see happening in Tyson's, a lot of uh, residentials, condos, uh, uh, senior uh, buildings for the senior living, mm. uh, some corporate offices, uh, you know, moving into Tyson's. There's a lot happening, and I'm personally just uh, thrilled to be able to be part of it. And we are we're thrilled to be able to be we're thrilled to be uh, able to be in the heart of Tyson's at this at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, Capital One themselves they just opened their last uh, building, so there's there used to be two. Now they opened their last one, wow. which is right across the street from the entrance of Capital One Hall. Mm -hmm. You'll see it when you're going to Mateo. Some of, some of these new new restaurants also joining us. Um, right now we are sitting in the 24th floor uh, right. of one of our suites. We have 300 suites. We have a 2,000 square foot uh, square feet gym in the 25th floor. Mm. Um, the hotel is doing uh, fantastic. Uh, we are thrilled to see that guests continue to to find about us you know, that's a new business but, so can we talk about this suite that we're in because there's like a little kitchenette it, it's a very massive footprint <laughs> right like it's well appointed but two very large bedrooms a beautiful big bathroom what so we're in a suite which is very swanky but Tell us about like what most of the rooms look like and what people can expect here in the hotel. Sure, actually, uh, all our uh, we have all suites. Oh, okay. So we have all three hundred suites, different sizes, mm -hmm. from six hundred to eighteen hundred okay. square foot. <laughs> and uh, the, this particular one has two bedrooms, two bathrooms, uh, full size um, full size refrigerator, stove, yeah, and, dishwasher, and and a dishwasher, and actually a washer and dryer. Mm. So. So again, so we have um and and what I guess the the goal between uh, you know the goal behind this 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 uh, design mm -hmm. was to make something that has touches of luxury and elegance, but at the same time uh, a, a level of comfort and coziness. Well, and functionality. You know, so, and functionality for so sure. So do all the suites have? Some form of kitchenette? Yeah, every single one of them. Wow. Yeah, um, microwave and refrigerators and, and all of them. And one of my, my personal favorite things of, of our suites is just the floor-to-ceiling windows yes. and the view. Mm -hmm. That's just me, just always just happy to... You know, now, just do to, all to the rooms into... start... Because when you come in, you go to the lobby, and that starts on the 11th floor where the perch is. Then are all the rooms 11th and up? We actually have some that are from the 4 to 8. Oh, okay. Yeah, so four to eight and nine floors restaurants and then eleven is lobby slash uh, rooftop. Uh-huh. As you know, we have a four acre rooftop in the eleventh floor. Yes. Where we have an eighteen hole mini golf, uh, food trucks, uh Star Hill, the brewery, and uh, life entertainment almost daily, spring and summer. Uh -huh. Spring and summer months. Mm -hmm. And then underneath uh the, the perch, which is a rooftop, there's couple one hall right. with one thousand six hundred seats. That are now you know, that they have a Broadway comedy and and great concerts. Well, it's, so it's a I, fun destination. I think that that's so interesting because there really was no um, theater out here. <laughs> not not like independent theater, but a place for touring groups. You know, they all go into they go to the Kennedy Center, the Warner, or the National, but nobody there was no place to come out here. That's right. Yeah, the closest was um, what is the amphitheater outdoor? Um, oh, Meriwether. Merryweather? 
No, right, it would be Vienna. It just, just yes. Skibaman. But that was the only one, and that which is outdoor. Right. So this is, again, I mean, I would say just in my opinion, after Kennedy Center, this is probably the second one. Okay. You know, just in terms of just... Uh, well, size. Just, just the elegant size and mm. just everything else. So, so again, a lot to do, and it's year-round. Right. Uh, year-round from, as I said, I mean, uh, from comedy to circus to kids kid shows. Mm-hmm. even Even kids shows. So... So again, hopefully, uh, you know, we're uh, now having more restaurants joining Capital One Center. We are, we're sure that we're going to continue to see a new guest. Great. Excellent. Well, I'm so excited to be doing my show here. And thank, thank you, you so much for having me and uh, for allowing us to use this beautiful suite today. Thank you um, very much. We will be posting uh, some video later on my uh, Instagram feed thank so you. people can see uh, the cool digs. Thank you so much. Always, always a pleasure to have you. Thanks, Osman. Thank you so Thanks. much. All right. So Catherine Miller is up next. Now, Jose Andres, you know him. He went to Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. And he said in an interview, I think it was with Anderson Cooper, he said, who better to feed people than chefs? Like, we know how to feed people. We know where the food is. We know where the stove is. We know how to cook. And I really think about that phrase so often because... Who better to look at what's on hand, what's around, and how do we feed those in need? And I thought, God, for so long, you know, FEMA, not that there's anything wrong with that, but all, all these people are trying to feed people, but they don't have the chefs there to do them. And so he's really become this huge advocate. And, you know, I think that's so in- interesting because Catherine really, way before Jose took up the cause to what World Central Kitchen is today. You have built this 20-year career. Um, I'm just looking at my notes. You know, you you worked on policy. You work in politics. Um, everything has a social impact. Everything you've been belonged in. But then you really sort of focused in on food. Yeah. And then you brought the chefs in. So, I mean, you have this gorgeous book at the table, The Chef's Guide to Advocacy, which I love. It's just chock full of insp- inspirational ways or let me rephrase that. It's chock full of ways to take your inspiration and act on yeah. it. So let's talk about sort of where you started. How did you become this policy person <laughs> and then an advocacy person, yeah. right? Because the two don't always meet. Yeah, no, the two definitely don't meet. I mean, I sort of always describe my career as a career in thirds, right? I spent the first 10 or plus years working on politics, raw mm-hmm. political campaigns. And the things that I Anybody learned- good? Um, some good folks, yeah. Okay. <laughs> a couple of presidential campaigns, a couple of, you know, gubernatorial races, Senate races, mm. all over the country. And what I love about campaign work, right, is that much like a kitchen, you have a goal, mm-hmm. you have a team that's working towards the goal, mm-hmm. and every day is a new day, mm. right? Mm-hmm. But you can never lose sight of the goal, whether it's to elect Barack Obama, whether it's to, you know, elect a new Supreme Court in the state of Texas, right? Mm. <laughs> um, yesterday. Yesterday. Mm. Um, all those sorts of things. Like, there's always a goal. But mm-hmm. every day is different, right? Because everything, every time we wake up, the world's just a tiny bit different. And so I loved that about political campaigns. It also, you know, as a young person working on political campaigns, I had a lot of responsibility very early, which I mm. also think is very similar to kitchens, mm-hmm. right? The people who are making and serving your food. Yeah, they just throw you into the fire. They just throw you in, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I spent, I, I took all that I had learned on political campaigns and took that into the corporate world slash foundation world and started building large scale social impact campaigns. Um, 
And again, the idea that if we build authentic relationships with people in our communities, they'll do stuff for us, right? Mm. I think we spend a lot of time as marketers or communicators running around trying to find the most famous person when we really should be looking for the most influential person. And it's not always the same thing. That's such a fascinating uh, point. I want to get to that, but I feel like that's we're yeah, going so like, to go down a rabbit hole. Yeah, with that we're going to go down a rabbit hole. But like, okay, so but how did you decide? How do you leave politics? Yeah. and be like, okay, this is an important issue. I want action on it. Yeah, I mean, I know that's the core of your book, but how did you personally start that? And then what you did was create a footprint yeah. or a roadmap. Better. Yeah, roadmap or a recipe or footprint, yes. like if you want to keep it all in the food world, right? right. I think for me, I really was looking for something that was much more personally fulfilling, mm. right? And also something that I felt like I could make a difference doing, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that wasn't necessarily about any one person, right? Like that's a political campaign thing. Like it's about that person, right? right? Electing a Barack Obama is electing Barack, Barack Obama. Obama. But if you're talking about a cause if you're talking or about, something, you're like sustainability or yeah. food waste, things of that nature, there's... It's a 360 issue. It's a 360 issue. There's a lot of opportunity to bring like-minded people who might not agree on other things together, mm-hmm. right, when we think about that. So it's not – and I always talk about the difference, too. I wanted to move from something that was strictly partisan mm. and raw-knuckle politics into something that was more policy-focused, more action-focused. And the thing that I ran into in the policy world was that many folks there didn't come from campaigns, right? So mm. they're – you know, they don't have an urgency to them or they don't um, or that problem's already been there for 30 years. So it's going to keep being there. So like we have to make our incremental change. And I was really anxious. That sounds really frustrating. That sounds like (laughs) that sounds like that sounds like a bless your heart. Like you're like, no, there's a problem here. You're like, yeah, we know. We've been working on it. Yeah. Like, that would be really upsetting to me to hear. Yeah. And I think it was upsetting. It was <laughs> it was also upsetting was, or and still is, is that a lot of nonprofit and advocacy organizations aren't really dedicated to putting themselves out of business, mm-hmm. which in my mind, every foundation should be sunsetting. They should be spending all the money that they have. That is Organizations should be working to end poverty. And if they end poverty... They've done their job and they should go away. Right. But that's actually not how. No, I was just thinking of like, I mean, this is no hit on like Deb Shore and, you know, share our strength. Um, No kid hungry. I mean, you know, they've been at it a long time. Deb has said, we know how to feed kids. Yeah. We know how to take care of it. And yet we still struggle in this country with getting our kids fed. We still struggle with, you know, hunger is 100% a policy choice, right? right? I mean, what we have decided, who we prioritize. And I think that there are frontline organizations, organizations that feed people have figured out how to do it, whether it's innovative organizations like Westside Campaign Against Hunger in New York, Mm -hmm. whether it's large scale national campaigns, you know, like No Kid Hungry, whether it's places like DC Central Kitchen Mm -hmm. in our own area, who do, whether it's World Central Kitchen, Right. right? There is always going to be a need for emergency feeding. Right. Right. And one of the things that we haven't quite figured out how to do is to make sure that everyone has the financial resources, the access and the ability to have to know where their food is coming from all the time. So I found that really frustrating in the global Mm -hmm. health space. And and I really wanted to work um, in conditions that were more focused on like 
not just how we treat the problem, but how we actually solve the problem. Okay. And so I started working with foundations and nonprofits and others as a consultant. And that was how, you know, two trustees of the Beard Foundation, of the James Beard Foundation, a guy named Eric Kessler, who's mm-hmm. a DC area um, philanthropy advisor, and Michelle Nishan, who is a chef out of Connecticut, mm-hmm. um, had this idea of like celebrity chefs as spokespeople. And it was right. very much modeled off this idea um, of rock stars on Capitol Hill talking about healthcare or, you know, mental talking about or whatever. mental health or, um, but what, and so they came to me and they said, would you do this? But and, were there causes that they wanted to eradicate or push? No. So this is the interesting thing, right? Okay. Like, I think what we- They wanted the chefs to have their own They causes. wanted chefs to have a voice mm-hmm. and the tools to use that voice effectively, mm. right? And it was almost issue agnostic. Right. Because we're all individuals. We might think about something might touch our heart and our minds very differently than somebody else. So Mm -hmm. you might be really interested in food waste or this person. Kyle Bailey, you know, is super interested in seafood sustainability. It's like part of his brand, part of his Mm -hmm. piece. So, you know, it wasn't intended to be like we are going to fix these problems in the food system. Mm -hmm. It was that there are people missing from the table all these policy conversations are not, they're not utilizing spokespeople who literally sit at every corner of our nation, right? Mm-hmm. There are restaurants, mom and pops, five stars, everything in between in literally every community in America. Right. And those are the people that you trust to feed you well, that you go to celebrate your, you know, that your promotion, your job. They employ so many people got their first jobs in the food system of right, in restaurants. Like I was a really bad waitress in my family's restaurant. Never again. Um, right. Um, I was a hostess. <laughs> no, it was. But it they was, wouldn't give me a tray. But I got to greet people. I was very good at that. Yeah. No, that's what my family did. They moved mm-hmm. me to the mm-hmm. greeting position. Um, right. So these uh, restaurants and those businesses sit in every community. And but they weren't being asked to sit at these policy tables, nor did they know how to- How to behave in that. How to behave, you know, how to get I, in the door. I just, it's so funny. Years ago, like right 20, like maybe 19 years ago, I've been around like in the industry for like a year. Yeah. And I sat on this panel on sustainability at the Smithsonian. Uh-huh. It was mostly chefs and me. I'm just not really sure how I wound there, but I was like, I had learned I early this. on, like people were always like, if you get asked to do something, you just say yes. So yeah. I say yes to everything. Um, for better or for worse. But uh, Bob Kincaid ah, yeah, yeah, was yeah. on the panel with me, and so was Barton Seaver. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was like 16 years ago. Anyway, at the time, Barton Seaver was like the sustainable seafood yeah. guy. Like, he got your message, and he was like, I am going to trumpet this. This is my cause. And somebody in uh, the audience asked a question about communicating with chefs. Yeah. And how, you know, what is the best way to learn from chefs about these issues, whether it's sustainability, local farming, you know, yeah. whole animal, et cetera. And Bob Kincaid got up and said, I just want to be clear. Chefs are assholes and most chefs are uneducated. And if you're looking for us to educate you, yeah. you're wrong. And I was like, or don't go to Bob. I mean, I literally took up. I was like, or don't go to Bob Kincaid. Yeah. But there are plenty of chefs out here. Yeah. who really have causes that they're passionate about and they're not just serving it on your plate, 
they'll tell you about it if you ask. Yeah. And I think that was really when Michelle and Eric were thinking about this, they were thinking about this reputation, mm-hmm. right? And that no one was going to ask, you know, Tom Clicchio or Jose Andres at the time or any of these people to give them advice or share information about a policy that impacted them. Mm-hmm. And it was a complete missed opportunity, right? And the other thing that was happening on the chef side was that all these nonprofits were raising money mm. by promoting the chef's like involvement in their fundraiser, right? But they weren't having building really authentic relationships. Right. right? They weren't like you can I just don't have to pay you to be here. You could take up this cause if it yeah. speaks to you. Right? And you know, and I talk about this a little bit in the book. There's, you know, we did started doing I started doing audits of how much chefs were donating to causes and how often they were asked. And, you know, on average, it's about $50,000 in time, gift certificates, cookbooks, right? The problem is they're giving that $50,000 to like a hundred different organizations in the community. If you gave $50,000 to any one organization, you would be one of its top donors. Sure. No, right? And they really would treat point. you differently, mm. right? You would be invited to different things. They would engage you in conversation, right? And so taking all of those chefs, all that money that they're giving, and no one's asking their opinion. No one's saying, like, what's the problem facing restaurant workers related to hunger, right? What's the, How do we deal with food waste? How are we going to change this, right? So it was... There was a real opportunity, but one of the challenges was that we needed them to be informed and reasonable and advocates. Well, and educated. Educated. So, and I don't mean just educated on the topic. Yeah. I mean educated in how to communicate. Yeah. Right. Not everybody knows how to communicate. And especially not on policy, right? Like policy or the changes that we want to see in the world are hugely complicated. Mm -hmm. They're also, um, you know, they require coalition building. They require different types of language. They require different ways of showing up, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And so we really saw this uh, shift. We started to train the chefs 15 at a time through the James Beard Foundation, the Chef Bootcamp for Policy and Change. Mm -hmm. And then what we saw was... So what was it, like a three-day thing? It's three days. Um, It's still continuing today. Mm and it's a wonderful, I mean, I, I love the program because. Well, it, first of all, it was super networking. Super right? networking. Like I just know so many women who did it. Yep. Who just like came away, like they went to sleepaway camp for the weekend. Do you know what I mean? Like they just came away with new contacts and, you know, really like, oh, I don't, maybe they came away with like, oh, I can do You can something. do something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, which was the idea, right? Like you awaken their brains mm-hmm. and you give them the tool, you make it sparkly and then they know that they can do something. Mm-hmm. And then how they then go off and the causes that they care about or the things they pick is totally up to them, mm-hmm. right? But they have a toolbox, right? So, and so like what's in this toolbox without giving away everything? But like what are some of the things in this toolbox? Because what I'd like to talk about is like what you're – what you're suggesting to people, yep. how they do it. And then let's talk about some of the success stories that you see. Yep. You know, you have a lot of people in this book yeah. who are huge success stories because of the advocacy they're doing, right? I think advocacy certainly become a much more accepted part of the brand of mm. being a chef or a brand of being a restaurant. What was inter- one, one of the things that was interesting to me was that I, all the stories in the book, that all the chefs that I interviewed for the book, all the chefs that have gone through the boot camp, like I think of them as like influencers and famous and blah, blah, blah. 
And I had somebody, a very famous chef, read the book. Um, and she called me afterwards and she was like, I didn't know half the people that were in your book. I literally had to Google people. And I was like, if you don't know who they are, <laughs> right? Um, but honestly, I, I don't know. I just think people are so overwhelmed with no, people, everything hitting them. Like, it's just impossible. No, it was a really good reminder to mm -hmm. me, right? Like that not everybody sees this, all this happening in the same way that I see it, right? right? So it was a very good reminder, but it was also like, oh, wait. Um, <laughs> you know, I so the... The formula or the recipe is actually pretty simple, right? Mm -hmm. It's an advocacy training um, that incorporates how to be how to deliver a succinct message mm -hmm. in a way that appeals to policymakers and people who are in the decision making tree, which is a little different than people on the line, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's all about networks. Um, you mentioned it, like people go to the boot camp and they think, "Oh my god, this is the best networking I've ever had." Mm -hmm. Chefs are some of the most and food people in general are some of the most connected, most networked people I've ever met. They can mm -hmm. call a farmer, they can call a hotel guy, yeah. right? And everything in between. And there, those are- Well, because everybody is six degrees of separation. Six degrees of separation, and it's all built on trusted relationships. Sure. Right? Um, and so if you have a clear message and you can activate your network and you know what it is that you wanna do, so one of the calls to action in the book is, if, if you are inspired to act, you have a responsibility to be educated and informed about it, right? Mm -hmm. And that there are lots of organizations and lots of people that have done this work before you. Mm -hmm. um, and so get to know them, build relationships with them. I love, you know, Tom Colicchio in the book says that his, one of his first things was being invited to cook at the No Kid Hungry Share Our Strength fundraiser and how he knew that meant that he had arrived as a chef, mm. right? Because suddenly an organization, a national organization wanted him to be part of this big event, right? But that also started a 25 year plus journey for him on learning about first school food, then the greater hunger problem, mm -hmm. right? Then the political scape, then the founding of food policy action, right? So it's also not, it's not linear and it's not quick, but if you can start to build that authentic relationship with an organization or a cause, then you can utilize your networks for it, right? Mm -hmm. Then you know your script. and it all kind of goes from there. Right. That's amazing. Well, I, Tom is a very interesting because he's as a chef and he's got a very elevated platform, obviously. Yep. He's able to take on more causes and be very hyperbole about them. Um, but let's talk about some of the other people who you really think directly were influenced or were able to take the information that you gave them mm -hmm. and, and, and create new things. Yeah, I mean, I, I always tell the story because it's an issue that's really close to my heart, which is on mental health, mm -hmm. right? So there was, there's a chef in Sacramento, California, Patrick Mulvaney, mm -hmm. and they had a number of deaths by suicide in the Sacramento food community. And at the same time, around the same time um, was when Anthony Bourdain killed himself mm -hmm. and um, his death by suicide. And it meant this explosion of like, what is going on in this industry where mm -hmm. people seem happy, people are always providing hospitality and doing all this stuff. And Patrick put all the things to work, right? He's like, okay, I got, who's my audience? My audience is policymakers. I need mental health coverage, right? I need this in For policy, people in, the in, industry, right. in restaurants, in the industry. Okay, I need that. Okay, I also need trainings and all the things. So how am I going to go talk to a donor to get you know, Kaiser Permanente to come on board and build mm. a training that's specific to food and restaurant and hospitality workers. And then what do I need to know 
right about mm. this industry. And so it was a he he's to so know, did he call you for help? I'm just sort of curious, like, what's do people call you? And are they like, <laughs> Catherine, I mean, you I, gave me you gave me a roadmap and it's great, but I'm it's overwhelming. It's, it's gotta be. It's overwhelming. I, I, I have a bit of a nickname in the chef community, which is the bat phone. Mm -hmm. um, and so when people would go through boot camp, the message was always like, if you want to figure out what you want to do with this, call Catherine. Okay. Right. And so literally for like 10 years of my life, it was like, oh, Catherine, she's the bat phone. Okay. Call the bat phone. And people would call me and they'd be like, so, so-and-so said that you're the bat phone and I can just call you. Oh my God. <laughs> And I was like, okay, yes. It's, I mean, is it like, is it a collect call? Because I feel like <laughs> it should be, right? Right. Um, no, it's, mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I have been really grateful and really honored. And I love this community in a way that I didn't, it, the penny dropped for me 10 years ago at the very first boot camp and, you know, meeting these chefs and hearing their stories and hearing their relationships with their customers and hearing their relationships to the community. I was like, oh, this is what the nonprofit and advocacy community is looking for in all of the celebrities that they're getting on their causes and then get really frustrated when it doesn't work that somebody, they didn't raise any money off that singular tweet that some, mm -hmm. they got convinced some celebrity to send or, um, because, because that's, that's not ad advocacy. People think it's advocacy, but advocacy is at its core is you telling somebody mm -hmm. who trusts you mm -hmm. what you care about right. and giving them something to do mm -hmm. and not lecturing them about it. Not, no, this is important to This is me. important and this is why it's important mm -hmm. to me, right? And this is why I think you should care about mm -hmm. this. And this is what happens if you and I care. Right. But I also think when it comes to chefs, like you keep using the term celebrity yep. and there are celebrity chefs, but there are also a lot of chefs that you and I know, right? Yep. Like they're in your book. Yeah. Now you and I know Paulo, yep. you and I know Rob Ruba, we know them, yep. but you're right. Like some, somebody else across the country may be like, I don't know either of them, but they know Bakers Against Racism. Yeah, no, and Bakers Against Racism, which was founded here in the DC area by, you know, Willa and Paula and Rob mm -hmm. was an amazing reaction to what was happening at the time. Yeah. And, you know, and it was fast and it was fast. And that is the other thing that I really love about the chef community mm -hmm. is they can think on their feet. Mm -hmm. Right. And Paula told me the story about how they just figured out that if they could, they had figured out already the Instagram algorithm. Mm. And if they could glitch the picture, people would stick on the post. Right. What? So the, if the, at this time, you know, back in um, right. 2020, 2020, right. The algorithm for Instagram was, has it hadn't quite perfected itself. And so they, the, if you remember the original image of Bakers Against Racism is this kind of like moving yeah, yeah, yeah. picture. And they did that because they had figured out that people would sp spend more time on the posts because it would glitch. Huh. Right? Like that's not, they don't teach that in advocacy school. No. <laughs> like, you have to be, you know, a chef who is working and hustling and figuring out and figuring yeah. out how to market. So anyway, but they were able to raise millions of dollars. They continue to mobilize at times of need around that. Mm -hmm. And they were also very intentional about the message that they use and their call to action, right? They, it was very clear. And the other thing I love about... Well, the community involvement in that one. That was what I was just going to say. I mean, the structure of it. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't some foundation. It nope. wasn't like some money. It was like, okay, 
random people are going to be baking. Yep. You can buy their baked goods. They're going to... Yep. All the money is going to go to this cause. Yeah. And there is a transparent Google sheet. Yes. With all of it. With it all of fascinating. it. Fascinating. It was really fascinating. And it's a great lesson. I mean, we had kind of, we had done something not the same, but similar with a campaign that I had worked on before called Nothing But Nets, which was an anti-malaria initiative. Mm. And we made it, there was brand, there were collateral aspects, but everybody could do anything they wanted with it. Mm-hmm. Right. There was no super like the UN foundation wasn't worried about like brand control. Right. Right. right? It was like, go raise money at this. So like we had kids doing basketball tournaments. We had people doing large scale charities. And that was like the, seeing those principles come alive at bankers mm-hmm. against racism was just like, it was amazing. This open source advocacy, this community based involvement. And it was, it was so cool. And you know, I, and I think, you know, what I learned from them, right, was that this immediacy and the need that they could bypass everything, mm. right? Well, there were lots of, lots of organizations going, what the do I right. do in right. this time of need? And they, they didn't wait. No, and, they didn't wait. And plus, I mean, we were in the middle of the pandemic. I mean, yep. it was really fascinating how that one came to be. But I'm sort of like curious, you know, now that you've, like, if somebody went to Chef Action Network yep. or, yep. you know, went to the James Beard for your boot camp, were they given, oh, were they given directive? Yeah. Like, did everybody leave inspired and then wake up the next day and go back to their kitchen? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you gave them the tools. Yeah. No, it's hard, right? And I think it's... um I would say we would we would track this a lot at Beard. And it was also okay. one of the reasons I really wanted to write the book, right? Which was to democratize this information. Because right. the thing about the Beard program, which I love, is it's 15 chefs at a time, mm-hmm. sometimes three times a year, sometimes twice a year. Mm-hmm. So we're talking 50, 75 chefs okay. a year, right? Which sounds like a lot, but isn't. No. Right? Like they're Not in the grand scheme of things. Not in the no. grand scheme of things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so... You know, of those people, yeah, they're all, I can track pretty much everybody and say they're doing some sort of advocacy in a way that is authentic to them, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it might be different than what I would like them to do. Sure. Right? Um, I don't think we have at this moment, like, a chef army mm-hmm. that, you know, will materialize for an issue, a singular issue, right? I think what we have done is create educated, knowledgeable, trained advocates who, when they find the cause that is of interest to them, they'll raise their hand. They'll raise their hand. Sure. Right. And well, and I also think what you're seeing is, um, or they'll jump on board or they'll jump on. Right. So they'll see somebody else that they know, or they'll see it on Instagram or they'll see an article and they'll be like, Oh, well, not only do I know them, I align with this cause and I know how to help. So and I can I, get in there and get my hands dirty. I can get in there and get my hands dirty. I do think there are times, I mean, the stories in the book around the, the formation of the Independent Restaurant Association, right? Mm-hmm. Independent Restaurant Coalition, which didn't exist. There was no lobbying organization for small and independent restaurants. No, it was all about the big chains. It was all about the big chains. Mm-hmm. And that was a moment. I mean, and it was an amazing, like, uh, sitting there and watching this well, thing. tell me about that. Yeah, so, you know, about March 13th or so, um, you know, we were watching from New York at the James Beard Foundation, like, just watching the wave of restaurants close in two directions, right? Mm-hmm. Closing from the West Coast and closing from the Northeast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was just going like this. Yeah. 
and everybody was panicking. Sure. I mean, we did a f conference call on the 17th of March that literally crashed WebEx. Like everybody was trying to get in on the same time and it was like thousands of people trying to get on pre-Zoom, right? Well, and, yeah, but also think of, I mean, whenever I think of that week yeah. leading up to the 17th, you know, yeah. leading up to the 20th, basically, yeah. whenever I think of that week, like I remember that Monday, like being in the car with my mom who was in town with my son, we were driving downtown and like the stock market was crashing yep. and I was like, I think you have to go home. Like... Do you know what I mean? In restaurants, home, yeah. restaurants were like, um, so we're going to be, cl we're closing up 15% of our space and then it was 50% yeah. of our space. And I remember like I had reservations like two days later for dinner and I was like, I don't think I'm supposed to come. Like, I don't know what I'm supposed to oh, do. No. It was crazy. It was crazy. And right. But at the same time, and this is why, I mean, I, I, I love it because it was a total testament to all the work that we had done, mm -hmm. which was all of a sudden what we saw was a group of chefs who had been through boot camp organizing in the South, a group of chefs who had been to mm. boot camp organizing in Chicago, in California, right? Like all of these clusters of people mm -hmm. who had met each other through boot camp or knew were all getting on phone calls and like, how do we get, how do we talk to our mayor? How do we do this? How do we do this? Right. Right. And I'm not kidding. Within two weeks, we had hired a federal lobbyist, right? Like they were convening twice a day calls with chefs from all over the country. What are you doing? What are, what are you, you doing? doing? What right. are you doing? Like, how are we doing this? They had organized a spreadsheet on like their members of Congress. Because the other thing that we, you know, in policy, it's not just the authentic relationships we want to have with the organizations, but it's the authentic relationships we want to have with the policy makers, sure. and members of Congress, right? And there is not a restaurant in the country that is not frequented by a member of Congress or somebody on their staff sure. is not used for a Senate fundraiser is not a subject of a photo. And that's op. national. It's national. That's not just what's going on in DC. No. no, it's national, right? right? Like I would get phone calls and I actually still get phone calls sometimes from people who are like, Hey, this campaign wants to come in and use my restaurant. Like what do I ask them about the snap program or what mm -hmm. do I ask them about this? Right. Interesting. And so th they had, everybody's phone numbers because in their reservation systems, they knew every chief of staff, every email, every cell phone number, mm -hmm. and they just started calling. Mm. And I remember, and, and then we put together all the tools that they needed, like the economic study and the surveys and all the stuff that they could convince policymakers. But I will remember like one of the original phone calls of that Kwame and Wache, mm -hmm. um, Naomi Pomeroy, mm. Ashley Christensen from um, North Carolina, mm -hmm. Tom Colicchio, Kevin Bohm from Chicago, mm -hmm. right? Like, and with the exception of Tom and Kevin, all of them had been at boot camp. Mm. They all knew what they were doing. They are all asking questions like, who's our audience? Like, who are we trying to reach? Like, what are we trying to do? And it was amazing. And within a year, they had restaurant relief. Well, at a time when well I was going to say, and I think the proof is in the pudding. Yeah. Because they did have restaurant relief, mm -hmm. right? Like, there was all these layers. And... Yeah. Listen, we know government. No one thought it. they were going to get it. Nobody thought they were going to get it. I mean, people just. Even the National Restaurant Association didn't think they were going to get it. Well, <laughs> let's not go down there. But, you know, listen, yeah. I'm very good friends with Kathy Hollinger. Yep. She's been on the show a thousand times. She's no longer the head of the Restaurant Association of Metropolitan Washington, but I know firsthand. 
No, the but local her- restaurant associations were totally different at the time. Kathy and I mean, I, I love Kathy and I love working with like the restaurant association in Colorado. Oh and yeah, the one in Connecticut is excellent. No, right? but you understand what I'm saying. Like yeah. these local restaurant associations, they were like, well, let's get, do it. Let's do it. How do we help? Nope. What do we do? I mean, she chefs knocking on her door in the middle of the pandemic being like, you need to help me. No, she you was need like to- in a mask. Like, no. <laughs> I will help you. Call me. Call me. <laughs> Don't show up on my no, I mean, I mean, it was such a um, an amazing time to think about the resilience of local communities mm-hmm. and how people really, the, the customers rallied, the restaurants rallied, um, and then they rallied for themselves. And no one thought they were going to get money. Like right. everybody, like the cruise lines were getting money, the airlines, because they're an industry. Oh, the, right. The industry, but not the independents. Yeah. And there yes. was nothing, no voice for it. Amazing. And, um, yeah, it was pretty amazing. And and I'm very excited to see that organization continue to mature and tackle things like but credit what, card fees and oh god, tip. I mean, tip so wages. All and, the issues. The industry is really going through. Um, I think this incredible growth period. Like a lot of people are stymied. There, there's a lot of complaints out there from both the restaurant side and the consumer side. But actually, Tom Colicchio said, um, like in the first couple of days of the pandemic on social media, you know. The restaurant industry, the structure of the restaurant industry no longer works. Yeah. It needs, and it, it hasn't worked in a long time. It needs to be reimagined. Yeah. And a lot of people were beating that drum in the beginning days of the pandemic. Yeah. But, and I've said this on the show before, everybody was also chasing their asses trying to get a dollar in. So nobody took up the cause yeah. to make the changes necessary that the industry needs. But now I think you're seeing people like... Um, Hollis, what's that? Hollis, Hollis Silverman, yeah. Yeah, Hollis Silverman, who's like, no, you know, I pay for maternity leave yep. and there's vacation time and mental health. Yep. Like, I am changing. I am building the restaurant that I want to work in. It, they're growing pains. It's not easy. Danny Myers tried it with the tip thing and yeah. that didn't work. I think he thought everybody was going to jump on board and they didn't. So, but I think, I think he was ahead of his time. Yeah. I change takes time. And I think in five years, we're going to look back at all the screaming and yelling about tip wages and, you know, yeah. whatever else people are angry about right now and staff shortages and on mental health and all these things. And they will now be a part of the industry as the industry. I think they'll be a part of the industry as the industry if we can figure out the policy playing field. Because yes. the, what I do, one so it's very, it's not easy it is easier to build a restaurant or a restaurant group from the ground up with all the things, uh-huh. right? Most, there are a lot of restaurants that are trying to retrofit an old model, mm. right? So they're trying to make sure that their staffs understand, right? They're trying to make sure their customers understand, right? And that is an unlevel playing field. Well, it's also, a, but it's a cultural shift. It's a huge cultural shift and it is actually a policy playing field, mind field a policy unlevel playing field related to policy because okay. there are no there are no tax benefits for at the state and local level or the city level for mm-hmm. um, businesses that provide maternity leave. Mm. There's no the um, farm workers and restaurant workers are still the only two industries across the United States that are you're allowed to pay a subminimum wage. Mm-hmm. Right? That is written into policy. We actually haven't raised the federal minimum wage since the 90s, right? Insane. 
and well, in a meaningful again, way. It's an industry without uh, healthcare Care, options, does, mental healthcare options, yeah. like benefits do not exist. But benefits do benefits do not exist in a way that incentivize the owner mm -hmm. to provide them, mm -hmm. which then, right? So, and we forget that, I mean, these are owners, right? right. And they have to, you know, everybody always says, you know, you have to be a sustainable restaurant. And one of the best quotes was um, from Ari, who was one of the founders of Zingerman's, right? Mm -hmm. Who's like, um, there's no such thing as a sustainable restaurant that's closed. Right. Right, like, <laughs> like, how am I helping? If how I am I helping if I'm not providing still, jobs and I'm not providing? It's still a business. It's still a business at the end of the day. Right. So you know what? If you're still a business at the end of the day, you have a responsibility to go ask the mayor, to go ask the Congress, mm -hmm. to go ask the state legislature to increase the minimum wage, right? Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, you're trying to do this thing over here all by yourself, all by yourself, Agreed. and you're competing against people, and you're doing this thing, and like. And everybody's going to the race to the common denominator because they're all business owners, sure. right? So, like, it is complicated, and I and I and I don't want to sugarcoat it for folks that, yeah, it's it's crazy as all get out that more restaurants aren't like Hollis Silverman's mm -hmm. restaurant group, but she also was had the amazing opportunity to build it from the ground up and, and from everything she had learned. Yes, because she worked with Jose, Jose for so many years, right? Like, but she was really intentional. I think yeah. she's um. I think what they're doing is really exciting and amazing. And you are and right. And it's delicious. Oh, yeah. I love duck uh, <laughs> Which is right. the other piece about this. Right. Like, we talk about food all the time. I had a conversation today with somebody, and they were like, well, why are chefs important? And I was like, because your food has to be delicious. Like, right. at, the, at the end of the day, if you don't even agree that they're great spokespeople, but they are. Right. The food has to be good. But, you know, don't you think, chefs aside, including yeah. chefs, don't you think, like, if you think about social media today. Yeah. A lot of people think that what they have to say is of value oh, and yeah. important. Now, I'm not saying that's always right, yeah. but it has changed that playing field, right? So you yes. have people out there saying all sorts of shit, but that doesn't mean that they should. So an, an educated person who knows how to communicate their passion and have the facts, which is yeah, important. Which and to get in front of the players who can make the changes. Yeah, and also just understanding who your audience is, mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, there's. I, I do think social media, um, the prevalence of all of the, you know, we used to be so controlled, right? And mm -hmm. like where you could put things or place things, and now, you know, anybody can post a review about a restaurant, or anybody can yes. say whatever they want without any sort of education, without any sort of knowledge of an industry, without mm -hmm. right. And what my challenge is, is that I wish people, I wish especially business owners and influencers and others took a step back before they engaged, mm. right? Because trolls will give you as much oxygen as you give them. Agreed. Right? And like people who say negative stuff will give you as much oxygen, like they will take as much oxygen as you give them, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's a great guide to social media for, um, it was actually created by a social justice advocate, a black woman, Renee Bracey Sherman, and she did this whole analysis of how to engage on social media. Mm. And her number one thing is like, don't. <laughs> well, right? I, I have to be honest, I agree with that wholeheartedly, right? right? Like, I'm very careful on social media personally. Yeah. Like, I have lots of things that I would like to say, 
but I don't. Yeah. And given, like you said when we were off air, you know, it's just a dumpster fire out there right now. There's just so many things happening. It's so, the environment is so stressful, even though we're yeah. going about living our daily lives. Um, there's lots of things I would love to put out on social media that I just, I don't do it. And I'm always so surprised by those who do, because I'm like, what's your, what's your end goal here? Yeah. Right? Like, wham, I'm unhappy. Like, all that kind of stuff. I'll just tell you one funny story because you brought up Yelp. When I first started the list, are you on it, dot com, it was just at that same time. Because people didn't use emails as a way to communicate things in the same way. There were no newsletters and yeah. stuff like that, that capacity, especially by an individual. And um, just at that time, the Washington Post was allowing you to leave comments mm. on reviews and stuff like that, which, I mean, now you're like, everybody leaves comments. But at that time, it was brand new. And there was a couple of gentlemen, they were all men, and they would write me after they posted comments, mm -hmm. like on a restaurant review that Tom did or something that somebody else wrote. Yep. And they would be like, hey, Nikki, you should see my review. And I was like, what? Isn't that a review? Like, yep. those are comments. It's a comment. But it gave them yeah. value to them. Yeah. It gave them a something to stand on. And I think we, we are now subjected to that all the time. I think we're subjected to, I, I, you know, I list, I think that social media and media in general have a very strong place in the world of advocacy. Mm. I, what I think if it all shut down tomorrow, I couldn't be happier. Seriously. If they were like, it's all, all those apps, ding, they went away. I'd be like, that's great. Yeah. It's, a, I think it's a whole other show to talk about like, the transition of like all these people, like, you know, who are transitioning from, Twitter, you know, formerly Twitter to X, now going to threads and like how I hard think, it is. Honestly, I gotta be honest with you. I think Twitter is, and I'm so grateful for it. Like, I think Twitter's gonna die and threads is never, like, they're just, well, you can't recreate it. You can't recreate it. And I'm okay with it. Yeah, I, I'm sort of okay with it too. But the more important thing for me, for people who, people who genuinely feel like they have issues or um, causes that they care about. Mm -hmm. And social media is the platform for them to do it, mm -hmm. right? That's where their audience is or whatever. They just, they do need to understand their audience, right? So if you've spent 20 years building a brand where all you've done, not all, where what you have done is post beautiful pictures of food, mm -hmm. and then suddenly you post information about SNAP benefits, right? your audience is not going to understand, mm -hmm. right? Unless you give them context. Unless you give them context. Sure. So maybe the next plate of beautiful food it's is... by the way. By the way, mm -hmm. this plate of food was created by... Like, right? So like understanding where your audience is at, meeting them where they are, mm -hmm. providing context, and then you said something that I think is a hallmark to really effective advocacy is what do you want them to do with it? Right. Because is this about you having an opinion mm -hmm. or do you have a really Direction. tangible action mm -hmm. for them to do? So, right, you, there's a cause that you care about and mm -hmm. there's a petition active for the cause that you care about. And you have conditioned your audience mm -hmm. to know that that's the type of thing that they might get from you. Mm -hmm. Right? Like if you went to my Instagram feed, you get pictures of food, pictures of my cat, right. and social justice stuff, right? Like sign this petition, do this thing, and oh, support women-owned businesses. Like sure. that's like pretty consistently if you went through mm -hmm. the carousel, that's what you would get. So it's no surprise 
when I post a petition. Sure. Or it's no surprise when I do these things. And I think that's what people don't understand is like they get really, there's an emotion that happens and they feel like I have to say something. Mm -hmm. And ask yourself not only why you have to say it, who you need to say it to, and what exactly you want them to do once you've said it. Yeah. Because if you don't have those, you're screaming out into the ether because it makes you feel good. Right. And honestly, I think you've really hit the nail on the head there. I think part of the problem is a lot of times they just want to say it. And then I'm very turned off by it. Because I'm just sort of like, what am I supposed to do with your anger or your angst or your injustice? Always give your folks something to do. I love that. That's a great way to end the show. Okay. Catherine Miller. Thanks. We can talk for hours about all the things. Uh, At the Table, The Chef's Guide to Advocacy. I have to be honest. You do not have to be a chef to read this. I feel like this title is misleading. I mean, at the table I get, and I love the picture and the bread, but, um, <laughs> well, your publisher a, will always tell you who you know your audience. I know, but I feel in reading this, I'm not a chef. I am a part of the industry, but I really saw a lot of value in here so. for anybody who is looking to get their voice heard and make change. And isn't that the point? No, that's a hundred percent the point. And I really hope it's a guide and the, I think the most satisfying review I've um, gotten so far is my 18, 19-year-old niece who read an early chapter of books partially dedicated to her. Mm-hmm. And she's like, I now understand about the food system. Mm. And I was like, that's the best review. <laughs> so, yeah, give it to your, buy it, give it to your favorite chef, give it to your favorite, like, culinary student, mm-hmm. give it to your favorite person who you go to dinner with just so they'll know a little bit more about the it's a process. I yeah. love it. Okay. Tell everybody where they can find you on social media. I'm on social media <laughs> at table 81 is my on Instagram and threads and uh, just Catherine Miller and my website's um, table 81.com. Excellent. And Excellent. you can buy the book at Island Press. Just sit with me for one sec. Yeah, of course. So thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you for joining us on another episode of industry night. Everything you heard here today, you can find on the list. Are you on it.com? Of course you want to follow me at N Y C C I N E L L I S on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all the things that are going to go away overnight at some point. <laughs> uh, and of course YouTube and anything you heard here today, if you have any questions for Catherine's or questions for me about places I've been and what I've been doing, you can just pop me a line on any one of those platforms and I'm delighted to uh, help. Don't forget to subscribe. Oh, and on my Instagram, I have a channel now. I'm not really sure what that means, but I'm putting information on it. So uh, check that out as well. Uh, Thanks again for joining me today. You should come check out the watermark because it's pretty fabulous. Have a delicious week. Produced by HeartCast Media.